This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg So we're really dedicating the new uh, Chabad house, the first Tanya class in this new Schneerson uh, Center for Jewish Life, like a really a house of Tanya, based Tanya, Beit Chabad, this was um, all founded and all based on the teachings of the Tanya. So we are holding chapter 3, page 64. And just like Chabad is Chachma Bina Das, 1, 2, and 3, and Das, which is the third, is really essential and central to the whole theme of Chabad, so too the third chapter is a very essential chapter, very central theme. Till now we learned about the essence of the Jewish soul, the being of the Jewish soul. The Jew, just by his very being, is holy. The moment he's born, he's already holy, as holy as he will ever be. He'll never become one iota more holy, holier. By his very being is holy. Just like Kalippa, by its very being is already the other side. It's a very being, it's already egotistical, there's already an I, it's already a Kalippa distortion, it's already a cover-up on the truth, on Hashem. So too, the essence of the Jew, by his very being, his connection to Hashem, his readiness to give up his life for Hashem, and his, um, he defines himself by his relationship to Hashem, his very being, he's holy. Now we come to the personality and the character of the godly soul. How does the soul express itself? Its makeup, its conscious self. Till now we were discussing its subconscious self, its being, its essence. But now we come, how does the soul express itself? And he's going to describe the basic conscious makeup of the godly soul. Although this is not the essence of the soul, because the essence of the soul is its very being, which transcends its um, attributes and its characteristic traits. But nevertheless, the personality of the soul is like the, the body is to the soul, the relationship of the body to the soul. The body is not the soul, but the body is unified with the soul. The soul, the body is an expression of the soul. The body feels the soul. The moment the soul wants to move, the body moves. You don't, you don't have to communicate to the body and order the body to move. It's automatic. The body is an extension of the soul. It's inseparable. Versus when you wear a set of clothes, clothes do not, even though they're, they're fit to measure, fit to size, the tailor could even tailor make your suit or your dress to fit you perfectly, but the, the clothes is not an extension of you. The clothes don't feel what you feel. If something affects the clothes, it doesn't affect you. You can remove your clothes. But the body becomes a part of you. You can't cut off a finger. You cut off a finger, it's like, <laughs> it hurts you. It's part of you. So it's an ex- it becomes totally one with the soul. So although the soul is not the body, the soul exists before the body, the soul exists after the body. But once the body and soul become one, they become inseparable. And the body becomes an expression, extension of the soul. So too, when we talk of the personality of the soul, the character of the soul, the personality of the soul, the intellect, the emotions... Although it's not the very being, the very core, the very essence of the soul itself. But nevertheless, it's like a body in relationship to the soul. It becomes like a body to the soul. The soul does become inseparable and one 
with the intellect and with the, with the emotion. And it's the soul that understands, it's the soul that feels, even though the soul itself transcends understanding or transcends emotions. But nevertheless, the emotion, the, emotional fa- the intellectual faculties and the emotional attributes and personality and character become one and inseparable with the soul itself. Versus thought, speech, and action. Thought, speech, and action are like the relationship of clothes to a person. They, they're fit to size, and you can and they're, they're you can they're measured according to the body. So too, the thought, speech, and action are fit to size, and they express the soul, but they're not one with the soul. You can take off your clothes, you can put on your clothes, you can change clothes. Thought you can change, speech you can change, action you can change. It doesn't necessarily. It's not a reflection of, of, of you, of the person itself. Now, each of these three distinctions and grades, nefesh, ruach, and neshama, consists of ten faculties, corresponding to the ten supernal sephiroth, divine manifestations, in which they originate and whence they descend. So this is a very core principle in Judaism, that everything that exists in this world is a mirror image, is a reflection of what exists in heaven. So the fact that the human being, the human personality, is made up of ten faculties, is because we are a reflection of Hashem, and Hashem has ten sefirot. Hashem, so to speak, His personality, so to speak, is made up of ten sefirot, ten divine emanations, in the world of Atzilut. So because we are called Adam, we are created in the image of God, man is created in the image of God, so that's why we're called Adam. Adam comes from Adamele Leon. We are a reflection from above. Adam could mean Adama Earth, but Adam could mean we are a reflection from above. We have, we have our choice. We can either be Earth or we can be godly. So because there, uh, we are created in the image of God, that's why we have ten sefirot. So much so that Hasidus explains that the shape of a human being, the reason we, we walk erect, is because we are created in the image of God, the Shem Hashem, God's name, Yud Kei Vav Kei. So the Yud is like the, the head. The Hey represents the, uh, the two arms. The Vav is the, the body, the torso. And the last Hey is, is the legs, the two legs. It's like a hay has two legs, you have two hands, you have two legs, you have the yud, the dot on top, and you have the vav, which is uh, the torso. So the, even our image, the fact that we walk on, on two feet, unlike animals that walk on four, is because we are created in the image of God, and we have, uh, the body is like the shape of yud Vavke, God's name. So everything that exists in this world is merely a metaphor, a symptom. We are just the tip of the iceberg. It's a symptom, a metaphor of what's really going on spiritually. Because what we see in the material world is only the external. It's like when you see a, 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 a tear. You know, what's the source of the tear? A scientist can give you the, ke- the chemical breakdown of a tear. But what is the real source of the tear? Something intangible, something you can't even see. It's the sadness. It's inside. That's causing you to cry. You can't see it. But that's the real story. So what, the tear is just a symptom. Someone sees a tear. It's not the tear. It's what's inside. It's the sadness that's causing the tear. The crying. So it's to everything that exists in this world, what the scientist sees, is just the, the symptom. The external. The most external. The tip of the iceberg. But what's underneath it? What's really going on? It shows, it points its finger that there's something underneath, submerged. Underneath the water is a whole huge... Iceberg, there's a whole thing going on that you don't see. Behind the tear is a whole reality that you can't, you can't bring in a laboratory and you can't uh, dissect. Or the, it's something intangible. An inner sadness. So everything in this world, so the fact that a human being is made up of ten aspects of his personality and character is because we are reflection of God who also expresses himself, emanates from himself ten spherot. So this is a very fundamental um, belief in Judaism and a way of looking at this world. Everything we see in this world, everything has a source. We see snow, sheleg. Sheleg is a symptom, is a symbol of what sheleg means in the divine. 
there is a level of sheleg of snow in the divine. When you see rain, there is a source for rain. When you see a tsunami, you see an earthquake, the Talmud says, where do earthquakes come from? Nothing in this world just happens because Mother Nature, because the earth rumbled. That's just a symptom of what's going on on a spiritual level. Everything that happens in this world has to be a result, a consequence, as a result of a chain reaction that begins on a much deeper, on a spiritual level and, and ultimately on a divine level. As the Talmud says, there isn't a blade of grass that doesn't have a corresponding spiritual energy that's pushing it and prompting it to grow. So everything that happens in this world, it's, it's a whole chain. There's, there's a spiritual parallel reality, and, and beyond that, there's a divine reality. Even nations, the Talmud says, we know that there's, each nation has a sar, has a, a minister, an angel, that represents that nation. And the president or the king of that country feels, senses that energy, the sar. So everything in the physical has a parallel, corresponding. He says, corresponding to the ten supernal svirot. has a spiritual parallel, parallel and ultimately a divine parallel. Because that's where they originate. Everything originates in the divine. God creates everything. So everything originates in the divine. And as we learned in the other part of the Tanya, that everything is created from the letters, the divine letters that channel that energy. So a stone, a stone has, there's a source of the stone, the divine source of the stone, what a stone means in the divine. What a gem, what a diamond means in the divine, what water means. Everything ultimately has a divine source. God created the world through the Hebrew letters, through, through the Torah. Everything has a divine source. But then it goes through a whole chain reaction from the metaphysical, from the divine. It comes down into the spiritual until ultimately it manifests itself, materializes into something physical and tangible and concrete in the world that we live and operate. Is this manifestation the final place of this? Like a, a blade of grass. That nothing, it does not in a chain. It doesn't become something else. No, this is, uh, this is the lowest of all worlds. This is the last stop. <laughs> we are the last stop. We are the purpose of it all. This is what it's all about. So this is the last stop. When it reaches the tangible, the material, the physical, that's the last stop. That's the lowest. It means it went through the whole chain and we are the bottom of the chain. We are all the way at the bottom. That's why when you want to lift a building, how do you lift a building? You bring a lever, and you lift it, you put the lever underneath the foundation, and you lift up the foundation. You have to lift it from the bottom. You want to lift something up, you have to lift it from the bottom. So too, if you want to lift up all of the worlds, this whole set, this whole chain reaction, you have to lift up and elevate the physical world. When we elevate this physical world and this physical life that we live in, we in turn elevate all the spiritual realms and we elevate the angels and we elevate the angelic realms and all the higher levels of consciousness and we elevate the divine. So that's why you have to reach out to the lowest in order to elevate the whole, the whole uh, chain reaction. So this is it. Okay, and then he says, continue, that these ten faculties... The ten seferit are subdivided into two general categories. These two categories are three mothers. Example, three of these seferit are termed mothers, for they are the source and root of the other seven seferit. As a mother is the source of her offspring, and seven doubles, the seven divine attributes called doubles, inasmuch as each of the emotional attributes manifests itself in a twofold manner, as shall presently be explained. He's quoting here from the Book of Formation, uh, written traditionally written by Abraham, Avram Avinu, Sefer Hayitzira, written by Avram Avinu, one of the first and greatest Kabbalistic works. And there he talks about the letters. So he says the 22 Hebrew letters are divided into three categories. You have the three emot, which are like the mother letters, 
Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem, which is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Shin, which is second to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The reason he doesn't count the Tav is because that's connected to the next category, which is what he calls the seven double letters. Because there are seven letters in the Hebrew alphabet that have double. Pei and Fei. Beit and Beis. Um, actually, Gimel also, we don't pronounce it, but the, the Yemenite Jews, Sephardi Jews, right, there's a difference in a Gimel and a Gimel. Right, it has a J, J, it has a Beget, Beget, Kafras, right, very good. Those letters are double, Chav and Pei and Sav. So they are called the double, so Tav and Sav, so they are called the double letters, the seven. And the three, Aleph, Mem, Shin, Aleph also represents the three basic elements that create the, with which this world is created. Aleph is avir, gas, air. Mem is mayim, water, liquid. Shin is esh, fire, energy. And the fourth one, which is not mentioned here, is earth. But the three that's mentioned is because the earth is included already in the water. When you cook water pure water, you'll find at the bottom of the pot, you'll find sediment, you'll find the earth. The earth was there, but you didn't see it. It was included. And then it emerges as earth. When you burn everything, you're left with the ashes, you're left with the earth. Um, so, but the mothers, the most important elements are the first three, which is the ear, avir, and mayim, and liquid, and sh'esh, energy, fire. So these are the mothers. And then you have the seven letters, which are the, the double. And then you have 12 remaining letters, and um, th- those are all the other letters. So he says what this also refers to in the, the, in the soul is the three represent the, seven, the three um, intellectual faculties. The general intellect is divided into three, chachma, Bina Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. We have three brains. You have the right brain and the left brain and the integrative mind. Then you have the seven emotions. Those are the Sheva Kfulis. They are like the offspring of the mothers. They are the offspring of the intellect. Because the, the emotions are based on the intellect. The more one comprehends, the more one understands, the more um, it will arouse, it will evoke a response, an emotional response. So the, the intellect is the mother, they give birth to the emotions, to the seven emotions, the seven emotional attributes. And now he's going to explain. And just to clarify again what he said in the beginning, our introduction to the chapter, he said each of these three distinctions and grades consists of ten faculties. So superficially, you can take it to mean that the soul itself is made up of ten faculties. So to clarify that point, the author, the Alter Rebbe himself, clarifies elsewhere the essence of the soul is beyond the ten faculties. The essence, its very being, its very core, is beyond the intellect. Just like no one is going to say that the body is the soul. Even the body that's alive, when it's alive, the body is the body and the body is not the soul. But the body is attached to the soul. It's inseparable from the soul. It's an expression of the soul. So too, to say that the intellect is the soul, you can't say the intellect is the soul. The soul is beyond intellect. But the intellect is inseparable with the soul. The soul expresses itself through it, through the intellect. And this intellect becomes an inseparable expression of the soul, of the soul itself. So just like you're not going to say that the body is the soul, you're not going to say that the intellect is the soul. But the body is alive and has become part of the soul. So to the intellect, it's become part of the soul and an expression of the soul. And the soul expresses itself through the intellect. So it becomes inseparable. But it's just an expression of the soul. It's not the essence of the soul. So what he means to say that this is, that the soul consists of ten faculties, he means to say that it expresses itself through ten faculties. On a conscious level, the soul expresses itself through intellect and emotion. This is the conscious level of the soul that we are familiar with. This is our life. We're not in touch with the subconscious. We barely know it exists. 
the part of the soul that we are familiar with, that we are aware of, is the, is the conscious part, the intellect and the emotions. That's our whole range of reality, our whole range of experience begins with chachma, with wisdom, the creative spark, and ends with, uh, with thought, speech, and action. That's the whole, our whole world. The whole world that we know of, the whole entire universe, our whole entire universe begins with chachma, with wisdom, understanding, knowledge, emotional attributes, and thought, speech, and action. That's the full range. Very tiny range. That's, that's our whole universe. The universe beyond it, the subconscious, that we barely even aware. Barely even know it exists. So now he explains in, in greater detail. Namely, Chachma, wisdom, bina, understanding, and dot, knowledge, are called mothers. And the seven doubles are the emotional attributes, known as the seven days of creation, chesed, kindness, gevura, severity, teferet, beauty, and so on. The other four being Netzach, Endurance, Hud, Splendor, Yesod, Foundation, and Malchut, Royalty. These seven attributes are known as the seven days of creation, for it was through these seven attributes that Hashem created the world. Each day's creation came about through a particular attribute. During the first day, Chesed was dominant, the second day, Gevura, and so on. So it says, Hashem created the world. With the six days. In other words, the six days, each day represents another attribute. So God created the world with these attributes. That's why kindness dominates on the first day of creation. The creatures that God created on the first day, light and water, all expressions of kindness. The second day, God divided between heaven and heaven, between earth and water, and that's, that, that represents givura, defining definitions, limitations, restriction. That's all expression of strength, of uh, creating definitions and constrictions. Then you have beauty, the third day of creation. Things started growing. That's an expression of beauty. And it says twice it was good. Then the third day of creation. And then the fourth day, God created the, the, the sun and the moon. He set the sun and the moon. And that rep- represents a victory, endurance. And then the fifth day is splendor. He created the birds and the fish. And then the foundation... Sixth day, he created man and the, and the big animals. And, um, and then you have Shabbos, which is royalty. Shabbos is the seventh, that's royalty. So every day expresses another theme. Just as the ten supernal sefirot are divided into two general categories, so too with the human soul and its ten faculties. They are divided into two general categories, sechel, intellect, and midot, emotional attributes. The category of intellect includes the three all-inclusive intellectual powers, Chochma, Bina, and Dat, Chabad, whilst the Midot, which bear the same names as their corresponding seven Sefirot, Chesed, Gevura, etc., represent the following emotions, love of Hashem, dread and awe of Him, glorification of Him, and so forth. Love corresponds to Chesed, kindness, as they are respectively, the internal, i.e. emotional, and external, i.e. practical aspects of the same trait. So chesed and love is really the same thing. What causes a person to do kindness? Love. So love is the inner aspect, what you feel inside, and chesed is the expression of that love to the outside. When does a person do acts of kindness? When he feels love. So the inside is the love, and the outside is the chesed. The same thing is with... um, you say, the fear of God. What causes a person to be strong, to be able to overcome negative tendencies, to be able to limit yourself, limit your appetites, curb your appetites? What gives a person that strength? And on the inside, an inner sense of awe. When you sense the awe of God, you feel the dread or the awe, or the presence of God, it enables you to limit yourself and to define yourself and to discipline yourself and to um, contain yourself. And the same thing is with what causes you to glorify Him. When you feel like glorifying God, then you express, you beautify Him. That causes you to beautify Him. Chabad, the intellectual faculties, are called the mothers and source of the Midot. For the Midot are offspring 
of, i.e. derived from Chabad. Now he's going to explain in great detail Chachma, Bina, and Das. So we'll go back to the note later. First let, let's, let's read inside on top of page 67. The explanation of the matter, i.e. of the three intellectual processes, processes described above, inspiration, cogitation, and contemplation is as follows. That intellectual faculty of the rational soul that first conceives any matter, i.e. the faculty which produces the seminal point of an idea in the first flash of illumination as explained above is given the appellation of Chochmah, which is composed of the two words, Chochmah, the potential of what is. It is a faculty concerning which one can only pose the question, Ma, what is it? For at this stage, the idea in question is not yet clear or comprehensible logically, since its details are still in potentia, emerging only at a later stage. So he starts out by explaining the very first step of consciousness. The very first step of consciousness, the window between the conscious and the subconscious, is Chachma, the creative spark, the creative flash, the creative intuitive spark, the Eureka moment. Um, potentially, he refers to Chachma. Chachma, he explains Chachma is broken down into two words Koyach Ma. Koyach means it's potential. Potentially, a person has the ability to understand, to comprehend. But that ability is potential. That ability is hidden and it's potential. How do we actualize that potential? So it begins a process of, first comes the creative process. And when a person... When a person is trying to understand something, when a person trying to understand something, and you are very puzzled by something, you're trying to figure something out, it makes no sense to you. You're troubled, you're bothered, you're puzzled, you're confused, you're confounded, and suddenly, a flash, you have a flash of inspiration. A eureka moment, a bright, a bolt of lightning, a thought, something pops into your head. And you feel that for one brief moment, that flash of lightning, I can see my path, I see the way. It's still vague, it's still fuzzy, the flash disappears as soon as it comes. I still can't explain it or articulate it, but I have a feel, I have a sense. I got the answer. I still don't know what it is, but I, I feel we have the solution. It's vague, it's fuzzy. So what do I have? I don't have anything that I can really define, grasp, explain, articulate, communicate. I have a point. There's a point. There's a sense. You have a sense, a felt sense that it's okay. It it. it I resolve it. Now this flash is a communication from an, a part within us that we're totally unaware of. Because while we were working on this problem and we were confused and confounded, there's another whole part to us that we're not conscious of that was also thinking about the problem and working on the problem. And this is the soul's potential to understand and to grasp. And then when there's that moment of flash, that flash is like a communique, an I am, a communication from the subconscious to the conscious. And it comes in form of a revelation. And what's the vessel for this revelation? The vessel for this revelation is silence, a sense of not knowing. It's that moment when you're the most confused and you reach a point where you're totally confused and confounded and puzzled and nothing makes sense and you, have, you feel stuck and, and then suddenly 
you become a vehicle, a vessel, a receptacle, you're ready to receive a new response, to go in a new direction, something unexpected. It always has the force of, rev- of a revelation. It takes you by surprise. Wow. It gives you tremendous pleasure, excitement, whenever a new idea pops into your head. One of the most exciting, most rewarding experiences in life, a creative moment, when you have no idea and you're truly confused and confounded, and then suddenly you get that flash, that spark, that answer. Unexpected surprise, a new, resp- a new response, a new direction. I never thought of it. That's brilliant, that's wonderful. Many creative people are not great communicators. Not only not to others, but even not to themselves. Because they themselves don't understand what they communicate. It's very exciting. And it's novel, and it's new, and it's brilliant. And it's creative, and it's genius. But they could be a creative genius. But they don't know how to package it, how to communicate it, what to do with it. Columbus discovered America. So he died in jail. America was not named after Columbus. Who was it named after? Ameriego, right? Who took advantage. He appreciated what Columbus discovered. He didn't discover anything. But he went to town to what Columbus discovered. So a lot of creative people, they create, but they have no idea what they created. And the other people come and they take advantage of what they, they create. They package it and they, they, they articulate it and they define it and they grasp it and they flesh it out. But on the other hand, you can't compare the excitement. It's like the excitement of the, the entrepreneur, the person who likes to start a business. The moment he starts a business, he gets bored. He sells it and moves on. He can't run a business. He doesn't have the patience. Doesn't have the, it's a whole different skill. He likes starting something new, seeing opportunities where no one else sees, taking an impossible situation and resolving it and coming up with a solution. That's the creative genius. That's the first spark of consciousness. That's the first in the chain reaction, the whole chain reaction, which is made up of ten parts. But this is the first spark, the initiative. Koyach, it's all potential, all it is is a potential. Because even after you have that spark and you have that creative spark, it's still potential. It's ma. You don't even know what it is. I can't define it. I, I don't have words for it. I, I can't articulate it. It's just more like a feeling. You have a feeling for something. I feel it's resolved. So it's a potential. Koyach ma. It's undefined. It's vague. It's fuzzy. It's without words. So this is the first development of intellect. The first development of consciousness begins with chachma, which is made up of two words. Koyach, ma. A potential, ma. What is it? I don't know what it is. I can't define it. I can't articulate it. It's more like a, a point. It's a point. A nakuda, a dat. A simple point. The point contains within it everything, but it's still... I haven't unpacked it yet. I don't... It's there in potential. Not in practical. When one brings forth this concentrated idea from the potential into the apple, that is, when one cogitates with his intellect on the seminal point in order to understand a matter full well, that is, when he ponders all the details which make up the totality of the particular idea in its length and breadth, length involves the range of an idea. When one draws down a concept from a lofty level to a lower one, by way of a parable, for example, in order to make it more readily understood, he is lengthening it, giving it a greater range of accessibility so that it will be more readily intelligible to a student. For a student whose capacity is more limited, one parable will not suffice. It may be necessary to provide a second parable to explain the first, thereby lengthening the concept still further down. As scripture writes concerning King Solomon, he spoke 3,000 parables, so great is Solomon's wisdom that to explain one of his thoughts, he had to give 3,000 parables. One parable to explain the basic concept, a second parable to explain the first parable, and so forth, until ultimately giving 3,000 parables, an extreme example of the length of an idea. The breadth of an idea means the multitude of details which the concept comprises, as well as all its ramifications. 
For example, the logic behind the halakhic ruling and the laws of kashrut may also apply to laws governing financial disputes. This is the meaning of the word la'ashoro, full well, understanding the intellectual concept completely in both his length and breadth. So it's only when the person develops the initial concept until he fully grasps it, he defines it, he fleshes it out, he spells it out in great detail, then he really has a handle on it. So firstly, when you understand something so well, only then are you able to explain it to someone else. And you're able to explain it even to a simpler mind, is able also to grasp it, you're able to find a parable, an analogy. And just like you lower something, if you're high up and you want to lower a package all the way to the ground level, you have to add another chain, you have to lengthen the chain. So too, in order to reach, in order to reach an intellect, it's not as developed as yours, you have to lower it down, make it simpler. Use analogies and similes that the student could relate to. You use parables of animals and foxes, parables that the, that the, chi- that the child or the student could relate to. So you're lengthening the chain, you're lowering the chain, you're lengthening the chain until it, uh, it, you explain it even lower level and a lower level. And also you're able to, to explain it in great detail. A person who has a rich understanding of a concept is able to explain the concept in great many detail. And he's able to find the richness in it. When you understand the logic behind the concept, you're able to apply it to many other cases. You know, even though you may be learning about this, and you may be talking about the logic in in physics, but if you understand the logic, you can apply it to business, you can apply it to other areas. Or you're learning a halacha in one area, if you understand the logic behind the halacha, you can apply that same logic to another area in the Torah. So, the... The uh, person who really uh, grasps, who really understands a concept, is, 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 has a wealth of knowledge. He's able to spell out all the details and all the ramifications. And from this point, this simple point, he's able to elaborate. And it becomes, that's why you find some authors are very short, very succinct. And other authors are <laughs> verbose. <laughs> Every detail becomes fleshed out and spelled out and, and suddenly it becomes from a trickle, from a spring, a wellspring. Chachma, wisdom, is like a wellspring. A wellspring is, is a trickle. It's a wellspring from the ground, it's a trickle. But that trickle turns into a roaring river. A roaring mighty river. Where, how do you get from this trickle to a roaring mighty river? But these are the two faculties that a person's soul has. One faculty you have is Chachma, wisdom. And the other faculty you have is when you take that wisdom, you take that bottled up or that point where everything is there in potential. And then you take Bina. Bina comes from the word Binyan, to build. So you have the architect. The architect conceives of a plan. You have a plan, you have a vision. It's all in that vision, but that vision is on one piece of paper. Then you have to take that paper and you have to flesh it out into a, a structure with beams and then there has to be a, an introduction and a preface and a first floor and a ground. Suddenly you flesh it out. Once you flesh it out, so many details and it's so vast and it's so huge and so rich. So that's what he says when a person then has the capacity he to take this, this vague, fuzzy concept or felt sense, more like a feeling, a sense of an idea. And take this idea and really spell it out until you have a handle in it, until you can define it, until you can express it in all its richness, and all its detail. And you could um, express it and communicate it and bring it down from one level to a lower level to even lower level, keep on lowering it down, bringing it down then, and its depth, when you understand it in its length and its breadth and its depth, just like something physical, has three, three, you have three dimensions. You have the breadth, the width, 
north, south, east, west, and you have the length, and you have the depth. And this all starts at one point. The point doesn't have length, it doesn't have depth, and doesn't have breadth. It's just a point. But then that point spreads out, and suddenly the point has a length, and has a breadth, width, and length, and height, depth. So when you take that point and you flush it out, suddenly you have, you're able to define it, suddenly you have length and breadth. So this is the logical mind. The very logical, analytical mind. So you have two types of minds. Although every human being has all of these faculties, but nevertheless there are those who are, have more predominantly one over the other. So there's a person who predominantly is a creative mind. His right brain is fully developed. The right brain is a creative mind very creative, very exciting, is always seeking something new, a revelation, something novel, the entrepreneur, finding impossible situations and making sense out of it and resolving it, and that's where he thrives. That's the creative person. The person who has a window to the soul, who has an opening, a receiver, a receptor, to receive that communication from the soul, the subconscious. Then you have the person who's predominantly logical, analytical. Maybe he doesn't have a creative bone in his body. But give him a concept, give him an idea, and he'll work, he'll wrap his mind around that idea until he fully grasps it and defines it and spells it out in great detail until he builds a whole structure. And it's a structure you can live in. It. It's hard to live in with a concept. You have to live with the structure. It's a structure. It's flesh, fleshed out. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. There's, there's a sequence. There's a logical order. There's a preface. There, there's a... And you can explain it. You can define it. You can grasp it. That's the logical analytical mind. When one cogitates on the concept and its length and breadth and delves to its very depths, as it evolves from the concept which he had conceived in his intellect, i.e. when he apprehends in a detailed manner the seminal point of intellect, which prior to his cogitation was but a nebulous point of Chokhma, this is called Bina. Bina is that faculty which elucidates the details of any concept and apprehends it full well and in depth. It brings it into focus. Chokhma is still... It's not focused. It's more like a dreamlike quality. It's, it's, it's vague. It's a sense. It's a, a feeling. It's a flash. It's a concept. It's, but you don't have the words for it yet. And being that, it comes into very sharp focus. You see clearly its outlines, its definitions, and everything is fleshed out. Everything is spelled out. They, Chokma and Bina, are the very father and mother which give birth to love of God, and ah, yira, and dread, pachad, of him. So first he says, uh, yira, or, and then dread, because or is in the mind. Or is more of an intellectual concept. Dread is when your heart is, pal- is palpitating, with palpitations, when your heart is trembling. When you really feel dread in your heart, it's, it's, your heart is trembling. That's more tangible. That's much more emotional. Awe is more intellectual, abstract. I'm in awe. But pachad, so first it begins with the intellect. Yira, awe. But then it translates into when it reaches the heart and you feel it in the heart, then it's called pachad. Like it says, if a person is drunk, one of the ways to sober up a person who's drunk is pachat. Pachat mefigoy. The Talmud says, Yayin pachat mefigoy. Trembling, dread, will sober him up. So not abstract fear. Abstract fear, but when you feel dread, you know, when something happens and suddenly you're, you're dread, it's, you know, it'll, it'll totally sober a person up. But that's if it's in the heart. If it really hits home, if it's really emotional, it really uh, hits you hard. So that's pachat. So he says yira and then pachat. So he says that the mother and the father, the father and the mother of all emotional attributes, chachma is called the father, and bina is called the mother. Because just like it takes two to give birth, the male and the female, 
But the difference between the Av and the Aim, the father and the mother, is the Av gives a seed, a kernel. But it's the mother that fleshes out the seed and develops the child. So that's why the child is closer to the mother. The child feels more attached to the mother. The mother has a greater impact on the child than the father. That's why we go after the mother, whether the child is considered Jewish or not considered Jewish, because it's the mother's baby. She carried the baby for nine months. She formed the baby for nine months. You know, the male makes a contribution. She says, that's the difference in Chachma and Bina. Chachma is like the point, the Nakuda. Everything is contained in the point, just like in the seed. Everything is contained in the seed. The whole trial is contained in the seed. But it's only when you take that seed and it, it's, it's in the mother's womb for nine months that that seed, that potential is developed. So while the child is in the father, it's still in potential, not an actual. It's only when it gestates in the mother's womb for nine months that it's actualized. The potential is actualized. Same is with Chachma and Bina. Chachma is too abstract to give birth to emotions. Everything is contained in there. Everything is in there. It's the spark of consciousness. It's the first step of the whole human conscious process. But nevertheless, it's too vague, it's too abstract to really have an emotional impact. It's only when that point is developed and fleshed out and it gestates and in, in the mother and Bina, then it can give birth to, to an emotion. Then it could lead to an emotion. When you truly understand something very well, I understand that this is good, or I understand that this is terrible, so the clearer you understand, the more focused it is, and the more you understand and fully comprehend and fully truly understand in a very logical and rational way, the more you understand that something is good for you, the more likely it will be that you will have an emotion. It will give birth to an emotion. I'm attracted to this. I want something that's good for me. The more you understand that something is negative and harmful to you and unwholesome, the more likely it will give birth to an emotion. That I want to stay away from this. I want to distance myself from it. I hate this. I'm afraid of it, etc. So the emotions are a result of both the Chachma and the Bina. The father and the mother. But of course the mother more than the father. So when the intellect in the rational space immerses itself exceedingly in all greatness of God, how he feels all the world, how God animates all the situation the human and divine alike in life form, just as the soul feels and gives life to every part of the body. A life force when clothes itself in, in and unifies itself with each creature. So he uses three expressions on the top of 69. He says, when the intellect in the rational soul contemplates, and he says, deeply contemplates, and immerses itself exceedingly. So contemplates, he refers to understanding that God fills all the worlds. And he says, when he immerses himself, that takes it a step deeper when he immerses himself in the reality of how God encompasses all of the worlds. And when he says exceedingly, he's referring to when you contemplate the idea that all there is is God. That from God's point of view, nothing else really exists. The only reality is God himself. There really is nothing else other than God. So each one of these is a deeper level of contemplation. The first level to understand how God fills all the worlds is not so, is pretty logical, something we can relate to, we can understand. Just like the body has a soul, when you see a body, you know the body has a soul, and it's a soul that keeps the body alive. Without the soul, the body is a corpse. So when you look at the body, you're not looking at the body, you're looking at the soul. The body is, is, has a soul, I can't see the soul. I can't hear a soul, I can't touch the soul, but I know the soul is there, I see it. I see the body is alive. 
the body is inseparable from the soul. So, it, I mean, from our own personal experience, we know that we, when we think of ourselves, we think of our soul. Who are we? It's not the body, the physical, the corpse, the flesh. We think of our soul, the intangible. That's who we are. The body is just, is just carrying the soul. It's a container for the soul. It's really all about the soul. Without the soul, without the energy, without the soul, the life, the vitality, what's the body? The body is nothing. The body is a corpse, and it doesn't last without the soul. So, yes, the body, but it's not the body, it's the soul. So, to this world also is a body. And God is the soul of the world. Even I can't see God, I can't hear God, I can't touch God, but do I doubt for a moment that there is God? That the world has a soul? That everything that happens, just like the body doesn't move without the soul, you don't lift the pinky without the soul, nothing happens in this world without the, without the soul of the world, without God. Just like the soul is in total command and control of the body, and the body doesn't, is, is just an expression of the soul, so too nothing happens in this world. No one lifts a pinky. God is in total in control and in charge and in control of everything that happens in this world. God is the soul, even though we can't see God. And the scientists can't see God in this laboratory. Under the microscope, we can't find God. But of course, what the, micro, what the scientist sees under the microscope is just the body. But of course, I know from my own personal experience that there is a soul. So that's almost logical. A person who would look honestly at this world, a true scientist who would look honestly in this world, would have to come to the only logical conclusion and perceive God. As Einstein says, how can anyone not believe in God? Any scientist, honest scientist who sees the vastness of the universe, even for the vastness of the universe, how can he not see God? So a person who's not blinded by his own temptations, and is not looking to rationalize his own behavior, and trying to excuse an animalistic lifestyle, has to come to the only logical conclusion that, of course, there is a God. God is the soul of the world. So that's, that's almost a logical conclusion. So that's the first level, but it takes contemplation. A person has to be open to it. A person has to open his mind. Because instinctively, we would rather say that there is no God. So he has to, he has to open his mind. He has, to, he has to open his mind to, to the reality of God. So that's the first level. That's the first level of, of contemplation. And that doesn't take a great exceeding. That you don't have to immerse yourself, and you don't have to immerse yourself exceedingly. That's that's just a straight head. Anyone with a normal head, anyone with a head on a shoulder, anyone who's honest, who has an ounce of honesty to him who has an honest bone in his body, will come to the realization that God is, fills all the worlds. God is the soul of the world. But then you come to a deeper understanding that God also encompasses all the worlds. That God is, is beyond our whole frame of reference. That our whole conscious frame of reference is so narrow and so limited. Our whole conscious frame of reference begins with Chachmah, with the creative spark, creative consciousness, that's the window to the subconscious, that's the beginning of our conscious world, the beginning of words and letters and concepts and ideas, and from Chachma down to action. It's, not, it's a very narrow range. But God is beyond that whole narrow scope. God is beyond that whole frame of reference. Just like our subconscious, there's a reality inside of us that we're totally unaware of. The only way we're aware of this reality, the only time we're aware of this reality is when we experience that creative, intuitive flash. When you're struggling with a concept and suddenly out of nowhere you get this creative flash. Where did it come from? It feels like out of nowhere. I have no idea where it came from. Like suddenly, a bolt of lightning. It can happen at the most unexpected time. You're in the shower, you're taking a walk and suddenly it just pops into your head. Unexpected. Surprising. A revelation. Where did it come from? I have no idea. What do you mean you have no idea? It came from within you. From a part within you that you have no idea exists. This is the only signal that we have that there's a whole submerged reality inside of us that we're barely aware of. So our whole frame of reference, the whole conscious world of our whole universe, which our universe consists of words and letters and concepts and ideas and time and space, that whole frame of reference, numbers, that whole world, it's so tiny. There's a whole universe beyond that we're totally unaware of. We just have this communication, this eureka moment, this window, this, this sense hey, this, that there's, we have a clue, a hint, that there's a whole reality to us. And so too, the whole world, the whole known universe, 
that we know the physical world and the spiritual world and the higher levels of consciousness and knowledge and awareness. and That's so narrow. God transcends the whole frame of reference, our whole conceptual world. Transcends time and transcends space and transcends all these concepts and past, present, future. And so there's a level of God that surrounds all the worlds, that's beyond all the worlds. Surrounds doesn't mean it's out there in outer space and something that's... It means we can't perceive it. We don't have the vehicle, the vessel to perceive it because it's not in our frame of reference. We could only perceive... It's like trying to explain to a blind person what sight is like, someone who's born blind. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't have the tools to perceive sight. He was born blind. He doesn't, he doesn't know what sight is. He just simply doesn't have it within him, so he can't, he can't talk to him about something that he doesn't have it within him. So since we, our whole frame of reference is time and space and concepts and definitions, we cannot even begin to perceive, we don't have the tools to perceive something that's infinite. Something that's undefined. Something that's beyond definition and beyond concept. So not because it's not real or doesn't exist. It's so real and it exists, but it's just beyond our frame of reference. So it's around us. We can't perceive it. We can't absorb it. We can't receive it. We, we, don't, we have no tools with which to handle it. So it's like, to us, it's like, it's a whole different reality, a whole different universe. To a person who doesn't know about the subconscious, he doesn't know what you're talking about. You can talk to him about his own subconscious. That's what you're talking about. But it exists. Not only it exists. That's the source of everything that happens in your consciousness. But, but you're totally oblivious to it. You don't know it exists. You don't even know it exists. Let alone how it works. Not because it's not there. Or because it's not central. Or because it's not important. It's central and it's there. And it's the cause and the source of everything that happens inside of you on a conscious level. But I don't have the tools with which to relate to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm blissfully unaware of it. So that's the idea when you talk about, same, same as when you talk about that God surrounds all the worlds, that God is infinite and God surrounds and is beyond our whole frame of reference of consciousness, of higher levels of consciousness, even the supernal wisdom. God is beyond all of that. And that's the core and that's the center and that's, that's, what, that's the source of everything, but we don't perceive it. So to us, it's like he's around us, surrounding us. We, so this already takes a deeper level of understanding. This already takes, you have to immerse yourself. This already, you have to go a, st- a deeper level. A person could understand and go through his entire life and only be aware of. He could be religious. He could be aware that there's a creator. There's a God. There's a cause. There's a source. God is the creator. God is the life of the world. God is the soul of the world. And it will even have an effect on him. It will cause him to lead a menschliche life. He's afraid to defy God. He believes that God is the soul of the world. How can I defy my soul? If God tells me to do something, act morally, how can I defy my soul? I can't. But he can go through his whole life not even being aware that there is a level, an infinite level that's way beyond our whole frame of reference. And he can, it could elude him. And he can escape his knowledge. And he has no idea. So this takes already a much deeper and immersing yourself. But even that's not the essence. Then you get to the essence of God. You realize God is alone. Nothing really exists but God. From God's point of view, not only is only one God and no two gods, and God is not only that God is in total command and control of everything that happens in this world, and He guides everything that happens in this world, and everything is divine providence. But the truth is, there is no other reality but God. There is nothing but God. All there is is God. God is alone. To Him, the whole world is, is as if it doesn't exist. Totally insignificant. Inherently meaningless. Ultimately, to God, all there is is God. Now, of course, that's a perspective that <laughs> it's not enough to contemplate. It's not enough to immerse yourself. But you have to contemplate and immerse yourself deeply, exceedingly. As he says in the top of 69, when the intellect and the rational soul deeply contemplates and immerses itself, and that's not enough, then he adds exceedingly in the greatness of God, then you understand that not only does God fill the world, 
And not only does God encompass all the worlds, that God's infinite life force, infinite light, far beyond the capacities of the world to receive internally, um, bring the world alive in an encompassing manner, but even more so, one contemplates and understands another aspects of God's greatness, how His presence, how compared to God, all of creation is considered as not, as if it doesn't exist. It's all considered insignificant, as if it doesn't exist. So when a person truly contemplates and immerses himself exceedingly until he's able to relate to these ideas, it has a very powerful emotional impact on him. In contemplation, in immersing oneself in any of the above-mentioned aspects of God's greatness, the need of all for the divine message will be born in a world of one's mind and thought, to fear and to be humble before His blessed greatness, which is without end of living. The fear which will be coupled and permitted with humility, as in the awe of one feels in the presence of a very wise of righteous presence, when you're standing in the presence of greatness, you just feel humbled, you feel bashful, you feel, you know, not because of anything wrong that you did, just your very being, you feel, you feel embarrassed, you feel, you know, you feel innocent again, <laughs> you feel like a little child. You can be a great professor, but when you're standing next to Einstein, the greatest professor in Princeton feels like a little baby, a little child, because his understanding is childish in comparison to Einstein's understanding. So um, when you feel that you're standing in the presence of Hashem, suddenly you feel very humble, you feel very, very small, and, um, and you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed to do something wrong. Not a fear that God is going to hurt me or God is going to punish me if I do something wrong. I'm standing in the presence of greatness. How can I even... I'm embarrassed to even want to do something wrong. <laughs> you know, how, how could I even desire to do something wrong? So when a person really senses and really senses and contemplates and immerses himself exceedingly in the greatness of Hashem, it will lead him to feeling a sense of Hashem and a sense of awe first in his mind, and ultimately it will also lead and will also be born. To be born a breath of God in his heart. This explains how contemplating God's greatness arouses the fear and breath of him, an expression of the attributes of Givur. Of Givur. So first there's a sense of humility, which is more abstract, and then ultimately till you feel a, a sense of dread. When you're standing right next to that great person, your heart is trembling, your heart is shaking. It's not just abstract. It's real. Someone puts his hand on your heart, <laughs> you'll feel the vibration. So when you feel, when you really understand the greatness of Hashem, that you're standing in the greatness of Hashem, you feel that awe. And you feel in your heart, your heart is really trembling in the awe. And um, it's palpable, you can feel it. Before we... Continue. Let's, let's go, go back. back. Yeah, let's go back to that. Um, at this point, it would be worthwhile to explain briefly the function of the faculties of Chachma, page 66. Chachma Bina Das, abbreviated as Chabad, mentioned frequently in the coming chapters. Okay, you want to read Chachma. Chachma is the first flash of intellect. It is the seminal and inner point of an idea. This seminal point of intellect already includes within it all the details and ramifications of the idea, but as yet they are concentrated and obscured. This is analogous to a dot, in which the dimensions of length and breadth are not evident. All that is seen is the dot, although for the dot to exist it must certainly contain length and breadth. Hachma is also called Barak Hamavrik. The intuitive flash of illumination, which is the beginning of intellectual revelation. For instance, we may observe how a person striving to answer an intellectual question suddenly realizes in a flash of intuition that the question can be answered along a particular line of reasoning. 
At the moment of illumination, he is as yet unaware exactly how the particular question is answered. He knows only that he has found an adequate solution to the problem. Thereafter, the faculty of Bina, understanding, comes into play through cogitation. Bina apprehends, crystallizes, and clarifies the details of the idea which were obscured in Chachma until the whole edifice of the idea in all its length and breadth becomes manifest. For this reason, the function of Bina is described as mevim dava mitoch dava, to understand or deduce one matter out of another. Example, that which was previously concentrated in the obscure, intuitive flesh of Chachma is now revealed and understood. After the person fully understands the idea with all its details and ramifications, he must then immerse himself in it, binding and unifying himself with it to the extent that he not only understands it, but also feels it. Only in this way can he be affected by the idea. If his understanding points to the desirability of a particular thing, it will give birth to a love for it. If his understanding indicates instead the harmfulness of a particular thing, he will react with a feeling of fear and flee from it, and similarly with other emotions. The faculty with which one thus immerses himself in an idea is called dot, knowledge, which is etymologically related to the expression. And Adam knew Eve, a verb which denotes attachment and union. So we'll continue next week going to explain um, how the emotions, how Chachma and Bina give birth to the emotions and the, the central role that that plays in this uh, process. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.